Chapter 1. Passage to Nowhere When I was twenty-nine, I had the life I might have dreamed of as a boy. A twenty-fifth-floor office in midtown Manhattan, four blocks from Times Square, an apartment on Park Avenue and Twentieth Street, the most interesting and convivial colleagues I could imagine, and an endlessly fascinating job writing about world affairs, the ending of apartheid in South Africa, the people power revolution in the Philippines, the turmoil around Indira Gandhi's assassination for Time magazine. I had no dependence or responsibilities, and I could and did take long vacations everywhere from Bali to El Salvador. For all the daily excitement, however, something inside me felt that I was racing around so much that I never had a chance to see where I was going or to check whether I was truly happy. Indeed, hurrying around in search of contentment seemed a perfect way of ensuring I'd never be settled or content. Too often I reminded myself of someone going on and on about world peace in the most contentious and divisive of terms. So I decided to leave my dream life and spend a year in a small, single room on the back streets of the ancient Japanese capital of Kyoto. I couldn't have said exactly why I was doing this, except that I felt I'd enjoyed a wonderful diet of movement and stimulation in New York, and now it was time to balance that out with something simpler and learn how to make those joys less external and ephemeral. As soon as I left the security of my job and plunged into the unknown, my father began calling me up, unsurprisingly concerned to berate me for being a pseudo-retiree. I couldn't blame him. All the institutions of higher skepticism to which he'd so generously sent me had insisted that the point of life was to get somewhere in the world, not to go nowhere. But the nowhere I was interested in had more corners and dimensions than I could possibly express to him or myself, and somehow seemed larger and more unfathomable than the endlessly diverting life I'd known in the city. It opened onto a landscape as vast as those of the Morocco and Indonesia and Brazil I had come to know combined. I thought back to the day I'd wandered through an exhibition of Mark Rothko abstracts and felt myself drawn beneath the surface to a stillness that seemed bottomless and rich with every color. I recall the time a friend had told me how John Cage had unearthed symphonies in the silences he'd set up in jam-packed auditoria. More than that, I'd long been moved by the way Thomas Merton, gregarious traveler, heavy drinker, and wounded lover, had stepped into a Trappist monastery in Kentucky and become Father Louis, taking his restlessness in a less visible direction. Going nowhere, as Leonard Cohen would later emphasize for me, isn't about turning your back on the world. It's about stepping away now and then so that you can see the world more clearly and love it more deeply. The idea behind nowhere, choosing to sit still long enough to turn inward, is at heart a simple one. If your car is broken, you don't try to find ways to repaint its chassis. Most of our problems, and therefore our solutions, our peace of mind, lie within. To hurry around trying to find happiness outside ourselves makes about as much sense as the comical figure in the Islamic parable who, having lost a key in his living room, goes out into the street to look for it because there's more light there. 
As Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius reminded us more than two millennia ago, it's not our experiences that form us, but the ways in which we respond to them. A hurricane sweeps through town, reducing everything to rubble, and one man sees it as a liberation, a chance to start anew, while another, perhaps even his brother, is traumatized for life. There's nothing either good or bad, as Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, but thinking makes it so. So much of our lives takes place in our heads, in memory or imagination, in speculation or interpretation, that sometimes I feel that I can best change my life by changing the way I look at it. As America's wiser psychologist William James reminded us, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. It's the perspective we choose.